welcome to Virginia's Young Farmers Podcast. I'm Morgan Slavin. And I'm Ashley Keeler. And we're a couple advocates who are passionate about cultivating conversations about agriculture and rural issues. Whether you're a generational farmer like me or a farming hopeful like Ashley, we're just happy to have you here as part of our community. Today, I'm really excited because we have, and I should say, I shouldn't even say we because I'm flying solo today. I'm saying we in the, in the spirit that Ashley is here in spirit. But today, I've got Jordan Wicks with me. She is the meat center manager at Virginia Tech. Um, I, so go Hokies. Um, and Jordan's going to talk to us about a lot of things here today. I think Jordan is probably one of the most interesting people that I have in my personal network, and I'm really excited she's here. I know. She's, she's got, she's rolled her eyes a little bit. Her eyes got real big. So. She's got a pretty big network. Folks. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> it's fun. No, I think that um, Jordan is going to have a lot to offer today as far as um, her perspective of um, being a young professional in the meat industry. She's got a little bit of a tie into academia as she's working on her PhD right now. But at the end of the day, I think she's got a lot of knowledge and advice on those that are livestock producers and providing a quality protein product into our food supply. So Jordan, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. And, um, I'm really glad I can be one of the most interesting people that, you know, um, so let me, let me inform everybody else about why I'm so interesting. Um, so I grew up in central Illinois. Um, I did not grow up in a farming background. Uh, in fact, my dad was a union pipe fitter and my mom was a nurse. Um, and so while I didn't, didn't grow up farming in central Illinois, farming is, is grain farming. So we didn't have fields of corn and soybeans, um, but we didn't have livestock either. But I grew up in a really uh, rural community that seemed like a lot of other people were doing that. Um, and so 4-H and FFA were a huge part uh, of my uh, childhood and, and my youth. And, um, you know, I got into that because I was the youngest of all of my siblings and I was the youngest of all the grandchildren. And so I remember um, my cousin, he was in 4-H and he used to show lambs with one of his friends and I thought, oh, this is great. This is cool. Going to the fair and mm -hmm. showing animals. And I got really interested in that at a really young age. And uh, so I was like, oh, someday I'm going to show an animal, you know. Mm -hmm. And we, keep in mind, we, we grew up and we had a few acres, but we did not have the, really a setup for animals. So why I thought that, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but, but I did. And so I was like, I'm going to show animals someday. And then uh, as, I, as I started to get a little bit older, you know, my, my older siblings, um, my sisters, they got into FFA and 4-H. And I got to see them, you know, jump in the vans on the weekends and, and go somewhere else in the state, you know, places I never heard of. And I was like, oh, that's, that seems cool. And they'd come back and they have a ribbon. I'm like, well, that sounds awesome. I'm like, how do I get a ribbon? And, um, you know, and then my other sister, she, she started getting, well, she, she did all the judging competitions as well, but she really started to do more of the professional development in FFA and went on to be the state Illinois vice president. So I get to see her getting in front of crowds and giving speeches and, you know, everybody in the state knew her. And I thought, geez, this is, this is cool. Like I yeah. want to do that. And so when I got to middle school, I joined a uh, FFA and 4-H and, uh, I got, you know, a lot of, a lot of it, you could have done anything, you know, you could have showed animals, you could have had a vegetable garden, you could have, you could have went and done, you know, Harley pro competitions or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and for some reason I found myself joining the livestock judging team <laughs> and it was just like funny because like it's Illinois and like there's livestock there. Don't get me wrong. And there's really good, you know, show animals out there. And a lot of people that are really educated in, in that area, but where I grew up, like that wasn't anything we really knew. And so I joined the livestock judging team and there was like four, four of us. Um, mm -hmm. and our, our advisor, he was a, a former collegiate judger and he, you know, he had a big, 
uh, show operation for pigs and things like that. So he was pretty passionate about it. And he threw us in a van what seemed every weekend and took us all over the state of Illinois judging cattle and pigs and sheep. And I thought it was great. You know, and I brought home a little bit, a little bit of ribbons here and there. And, you know, I just, I thought it was the coolest thing just being around livestock, you know, kind of, that's about as close to being a, being a cowboy in Illinois as you could get back then, or at least that's what I thought. So I was like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a cowboy. This is cool. Um, so that's how I got into it. Right. And then I got into high school and that's where things really started to change for me and get me into, into meat. So again, remember I said, my sister was like person I looked up to, she was so cool. And she was on the meat judging team the year they won the state competition in Illinois. And so she got to go and traveled to Louisville, Kentucky and competed at the national competition. And then she had a hat as a state champion meat evaluation team and had her name on it. She had a, like a Columbia jacket. And I was like, Oh, this is really, this is really cool. This I want to making it. This, this is what I want. This is what I want. <laughs> this is, this is it. So I got even more plugged into FFA and 4-H and I started judging uh, two cards, you know, the, the FFA card and the, and the, and the mm-hmm. 4-H card. And so I started doing meat judging and um, I was pretty good. <laughs> It was pretty good. And I don't know why. Can't quite explain it. Um, you know, you go, well, it's probably the coaches. They did a good job. They did. They did a great job. I learned a lot from them. And, um, but the, the thing is, is I grew up in a really small rural community. There was 36 kids in my graduating class. Mm-hmm. And I was about the most mediocre kid in that, in that entire school. <laughs> like I was, I like, I was like, do you play sports? Yeah, I play sports. Are you good at them? I'm okay. Like, mm-hmm. oh, do you play an instrument? Yeah, I play instruments. Like, are you good at it? Um, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Like I was, that but then when it came to meat judging I was like good I was like oh I'm probably gonna just build my career out of this because it's the only thing I've found that I'm good at <laughs> so I so I started judging more and and you know we'd go into these lockers around the area and I was like oh this is really cool and I was never like grossed out by anything I thought everything was exciting I thought this is it and so then it became time to go to college <laughs> and I go great I'm gonna go to Southern Illinois University um, that's where all of my other siblings went. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful part of Illinois. Uh, it's rolling hills and it's, you know, there's, there's still corn and soybeans down there, but there's orchards and vegetable gardens and mm-hmm. trees. And there's a lot of really, it's just a beautiful part of the world. And, um, so I went down there and I was like, Hmm, what am I going to study? And I was like, Oh, well, I really liked livestock judging. Uh, they have an animal science department. Um, let's do that. As, as an adult now, I think back to myself like, Hmm. How did I find myself there? Because I grew up in the land of corn and soybeans. And I thought, let's spend a significant amount of money on educating myself <laughs> on livestock. Like as if I had somewhere to go use that degree within the realms of, of my network, mm-hmm. which remember was small. I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't grow up showing yep. cattle. So I, you know, I had a couple of market lambs in 4-H that I showed and I thought I was, you know, big deal until you go to college and you realize you're not. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I so I, I go and I, I, I get a degree in animal science and I was really inspired by one of my faculty members there. Um, she was from Wyoming and she was like a real cowboy. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, grew up on a cattle ranch in Wyoming. Like, does it get any more? Nope. That's no, about that's, as cowboy as you get. Yeah. Especially when you're from Illinois and you don't know anything. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, this is it. And she was cool and she was relatable and she taught me a lot. And I was like, man, like she's cool. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. So I stuck with that and I got, I graduated in, 2010 with a degree in animal science. And I thought, huh, now what? Keep in mind, 2010, for those of you listeners um, that were around then, uh, you remember it was a little bit of a recession. Yeah, the, the that job, little thing. Yeah, that little thing. The jobs weren't really a thing yep. um, at the time. So everyone's kind of scrambling like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, and I had a friend who had 
just recently uh, started a, a job as a the poultry science recruiter down at Auburn University. And she goes, I, I think I know what you should do. I was like, oh, great, because like I have no idea. <laughs> and she's like, um, I just met a new faculty member down at Auburn University. Her name's Christy Bratcher. She's she's a meat scientist and she's really cool. I think you'd really like her. And she goes, don't don't you like meat? Like, isn't that kind of like your thing? And I'm like, yeah, like I if given the opportunity, I would have loved to study meat science. But the university I went to did not offer that. So Mm -hmm. the closest I could get was animal science. And I go, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So she introduces us. And long story short, I end up going on to Auburn University to get a master's degree in meat science, studying under a brand new faculty member. Um, and we were both learning, you know, mm-hmm. she was learning how to be a faculty member and I was learning how to be a graduate student. Um, and we were doing everything. We were working in the meat lab. I had another meat lab manager there, Barney Wilborn, one of my really good friends and mentors who helped mm-hmm. me really get excited about me and really learn the, 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 the kind of the trade of meat processing, um, you know, while doing applied research with, with Dr. Bratcher. And so I was like, oh, I can really start to pull these things together, understanding like, oh, yeah, like food safety is important. Feed, the way we feed animals is important. The way we harvest these animals, the way that we package, the way that we can, you know, uh, like make it look to the consumer. Mm-hmm. That's all really important and it all comes together in yep. this this field. So I'm like, this is awesome because I'm bringing in live animals. I'm working with producers. I'm working with consumers. Mm-hmm. I'm working with food trends. Like this is really exciting. And I was like, sold. I'm done. So I, I end up graduating in 2012 from there. And um, again, jobs still aren't great, but they're, they're getting a little better. Uh, so I interviewed with some big companies like Cargill and things like that. And, um, you know, you don't get every job you apply for. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you graduate, I graduate, I was going to graduate in, in May and April. I still didn't have a job. And, mm-hmm. I, and my advisor, Dr. Bradshaw calls me in her office. She goes, I got a job for you. I go, perfect. Cause I need one. <laughs> she goes, how about this? You, you kind of like working at the meat lab, don't you? I go, oh, I love it. It's like my favorite thing. She goes, well, perfect. There's a brand new pork processing facilities opening up in North Alabama. And it's going to be a small meat processor. It's kind of like a meat lab. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Wait, where did you say? She said, uh, North, North Alabama, a little tiny town called Eva. And I'm like, I can't even find that on the map. I, I'm, I'm like young and, you know, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to move to the middle of nowhere in North Alabama. And she goes, okay. She knew better. So she's like, yeah, you know, you're going to. So I end up getting this job and I'm, I'm working with a, a group of investors that are trying to um, kind of have their hands on some pork. There's a, there's a large chain uh, barbecue restaurant down there, Jim mm-hmm. and Nick's. And so they were trying to kind of cap, they were trying to build um, a kind of a branded program and, and say, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to, we're going to have our, our own hogs and our own, all that. So that was all kind of came together. And there was a couple other investors in that as well. And so, the thing about that was, that was the greatest learning experience of my life. Um, I moved to the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I actually moved to my advisor's old hometown that she moved out of when she was 12. Middle of nowhere, North Alabama. I don't know a single person. And I'm taking over as the plant manager of a brand new facility. And you go, how new, Jordan? How new is the facility? Well, Morgan, it, <laughs> um, it was a vacant, <laughs> it was a vacant old emu processing plant. I'm sorry. One more time. What yeah. word did you just say? Yeah. So for those of you in the back, uh, we were going to renovate an old emu. Yep. Like the large birds. <laughs> um, we were going to renovate one of those facilities that had been sitting empty about 10, 15 years, you know, been raided. All the copper had been stolen. Uh, there's, cool. I walked in to tour the facility and, um, there was like live raccoon traps set all over. Cause it was like, it'd been sitting empty. I mean, it was just an old rundown building. Um, and, 
Yeah, and there used to be a, a huge emu production in that area a long time ago, and and, and it went away. And they so, killed them. Yeah, and they harvest them for like I think oils. I think there was like a, a market for that. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah, I just learned something new. <laughs> yeah, and there was like one farm still left. It was directly across the street, so I would see emus every day on, on the way to work. But um, so I went up there, and I mean, I was starting from the ground up. It was the best. It was like the best of times and worst of times kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. I learned so much. I learned how to literally design a facility um, that would meet food safety standards that would make efficiency sense. So they'd be like, oh yeah, this will be fast if we set a sink here or a rail there or this light needs to be here. Just little things, the mm-hmm. things you look over. And so um, that was a great learning experience to figure out how to design a facility. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was great. So I got the, we got the place ready to go. And then they go, okay, we got to hire some people. I go, great. Um, anyone around this area ever done that? They go, probably not. Probably not. Um, but let's let's just go see who we can hire. And I go, great. So we hire like, I don't know, maybe 12 people, eight, or mm-hmm. yeah, maybe 10, something like that. We get them hired. And I go, okay, anybody got any experience? I'm the boss now, right? Like yeah. it's my job to train. I'm 24 years old mm-hmm. and I'm hiring people. Some of them are, some of them are in their twenties. I have a, you know, I have a man probably in his forties, you know, working for me. You know, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm supposed to be his boss. I'm like, oh, this is. This is something. So we get a crew up there and, you know, I just, I, I went back to my 4-H FFA days and I figured out those leadership skills, how you rally the troops, how you get people motivated. And I mm-hmm. stuck to it. And I, I feel like I got a pretty good team behind me. And we went in and we worked long days and long hours because we were all learning. Yeah. And when I left there, there was about 20 some employees. Um, and they, we were, you know, we were harvesting up to a hundred pigs a day. Uh, we didn't do it five days a week. We did it probably three or four. Um, so mm-hmm. we were running some some serious hogs through there. Um, and it was a really great experience. I, I you know I learned how to write a food safety plan and HACCP. You know I passed um, USDA USDA audits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I trained te- you know a team that knew nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was awesome. And you know we we were able to, to contribute some some economic growth to that area. And you know it was just it was awesome. It was a great experience. Um, but eventually you know as life moves you and takes you places, I mm-hmm. went down to South Alabama to a, a well-established um, uh, smoked sausage company. Mm-hmm. I worked for a company called Koneka Sausage, and they are then, and I think they still are now, um, the fourth largest smoked sauce, sausage company in the country. And you're, oh. going, you're going, okay, who keeps tabs on that? Do we care? <laughs> I don't mean when you're going against Hillshire Foods, you know, like yeah. that's a big deal that you're even competitive with them in, in mm-hmm. a very remote area of South Alabama. Um, but yeah, so I worked at a smoked sausage company and we started out there about 60,000 pounds a day mm-hmm. of smoked sausage. And then by the time I left, we were able to get that up to about more like 77,000. Um, so we were doing a lot of smoked sausage and I learned a lot. There was a lot of um, really great um, people that had been in that plant for years, taught me a lot about meat processing, further processing, mm-hmm. cooked products, um, how to run smoke houses, you know, mm-hmm. and, and make smoke cycles and, and things of that nature. So that was a really great experience too. Um, so at that point I'm, you know, I'm still in my mid twenties and I get a email from my former advisor, Dr. Bratcher. And she goes, Hey, uh, <clears throat> saw this thought of you jumps on an airplane, flies somewhere, jumps on a cruise ship and she's gone for like a week and a half. I'm like, did you just send me this job description with no, <laughs> no context, no context, but okay. And the, the thing was, it was, it was the position to be the meat center manager at Virginia tech. And I know why she sent it to me. She sent it to me because she knew how excited I was and, and how much I really enjoyed working at, at the meat center down at Auburn. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed doing something different every day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was working at Smoke Sausage Company and that was awesome. We were putting out a really great product I'm really proud of. Um, but it was the same thing every day. And and that can get a little 
daunting at times. Mm-hmm. And so working at a working at a meat lab or a meat center uh, on a university campus, it's always something different. You know, one day you're harvesting animals, the next day you're cutting, uh, you know, steaks, the next day you're running a, 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 a you know, a ham research project. Um, and you're getting to really influence the next generation. And mm-hmm. I remember how important and impactful it was for Dr. Bratcher and, and Barney to work with me the way they did, the mm-hmm. way they made me feel, the way that they taught me things. I, you know, I was like, I think a little bit about agriculture and the agriculture community is about giving back, right, yeah. to that next generation. Yep. And I think about my 4-H and my FFA days and you know, the people who took their weekends away from their family, from their own children, mm-hmm. to go drive me to a, to a contest, you know, or to mm-hmm. go and, and do this for me or that. And so part of me wanted to come back for those reasons, to, to a meat lab, to work in that way. The other thing is, you know, I was still thinking about continuing my education yeah, um, and, and maybe going on to be a professor someday. So all that kind of lined up, and I came out to Virginia Tech, and I interviewed, and I met with Dr. Gerard, uh, the director of the, of the School of Animal Sciences, and I met with some of the faculty there. And it was a really great, um, really great, you know, interview. I, I was like, wow, there's a lot of potential here, a lot of untapped potential. Because um, the meat lab had it kind of been sitting a little bit vacant. Mm-hmm. Um, they were trying to kind of get it going again. It, it wasn't really taken off. And so I go, wow, this is kind of what I do. I, I go in and I, you know, I think back to that plant I started at. And it was like, well, it was like nothing. And I turned mm-hmm. it into something. And now it's still open today. And, and I'm not saying that's because of me, but I got it off the ground. So I thought to myself, well, I can go to Virginia Tech and I can, I can get something going there. And, you know. We'll hang around for, you know, two, three years, and I'll, I'll go f- find another project. Mm-hmm. And here we are approaching 10 years <laughs> now. So um, it, it, start, it seemed to be going well down there. But that's kind of how I got to Virginia Tech, and that's how I got into meat. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of that stems back to my 4-H and FFA days. That's awesome. I, I like that whole trajectory that you did there because um, I think it really paints a picture as to the type of person that you are. Where it, <laughs> and, the, and this is the thing. This is why I think you're one of the most interesting people ever because there can be this – huge daunting task in front of you and you're just like well we got to figure out how to get there yeah we're gonna get through it yep there's no way around it yep (laughs) so um if y'all remember a few episodes ago uh we interviewed madison coffee who happens to be my sister but madison referenced jordan a good bit in in that episode so if you want to go back and listen to it but um there's all sorts of stories that come out of the meat lab um (laughs) that that i've heard i've not personally worked there i think the timing of this worked out i think i was about to graduate from virginia tech when jordan came in so our paths didn't quite cross as i was a student there but otherwise um, you would have worked at the meat lab obviously i would have that's the first place i would (laughs) have yeah exactly but um I love, I love how you kind of came together with that, with that. That was quite the journey we just went on. In yeah, the it was. And if, it, if it all stays in, uh, we'll be, we'll be like, I'm going to take a break after that one. Yes. All right. <laughs> oh man. So, um, kind of diving in a little bit further here. Um, I think you, you spoke a little bit, uh, as to why the meat lab was interesting to you. Um, tell us a little bit more about Virginia Tech's meat lab history and then kind of how it's grown in the time that you've been there. Yeah. So the, the Virginia Tech Meat Lab, um, back in its heyday, was really uh, uh, the place to be. I, I've met um, a lot of former Hokies in, in that work in the meat industry, the people that were educated by you know Dr. Kelly, who was a very influential person back in the day. Um, and we've had some other professors that have put out some really great students. Um, and a lot of, a lot of um, you know, things have gone on in that meat lab. Um, the people are, you know, that are still in industry today, you know, they went to school here, they worked there at the meat lab. Um, and those are always fun stories to hear. But when I got there, so that was like, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, I think in the 90s, it started to kind of slow down, maybe a little. And if I'm wrong on that, some hokey wants to come and, and tell me, oh, it was thriving in the 90s. I don't know. I was a kid. Okay. I wasn't <laughs> here. I was in central Illinois. Um, 
but I do know when I got here, it, it, it kind of gone dormant, at least in the 2000 eras. And Dr. Gerard, uh, now uh, the department head or the, the director of School of Animal Sciences there, he came in, I think, around 2014, maybe? Mm-hmm. That sounds about Yeah, right. about 2014. And he's, he's a meat scientist. And he goes, well, I'm only taking the job if I can get the meat lab. I have to have a meat lab in order to be a meat scientist. And they said, duh, that's fair. We're not really doing much, so it's yours. And so he was tasked to try to kind of get it back up and going. Um, that took some time. Um, that was an old facility, um, that had not been used maybe to its full potential. And so, you know, trying to get this to be an inspected facility, it took some time. It took the right personnel to get in there. Um, there was also like not a lot of space, like storage space. So for those of you that are thinking, I'm going to build a facility someday. I hope you do. But remember this, the number one thing you need to remember, you need dry storage. There's going to be a lot of boxes. There's gonna be a lot of like equipment and tools and, you know, and you're gonna have somewhere to put that. Well, at the time, when I got there, there wasn't like, they had like a closet and I'm like, Oh, so you guys are just like moving everything from one room to the other every day just to operate. And they go, yeah. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, that's not good. <laughs> um, you know, and like one of the back coolers was like nothing but like just a storage unit. And I'm like, Oh, well that limits the amount of meat processing you can do because now you're taking up cooler space with, with tables and like equipment that you need, but you don't use every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got there, it was, it was a little bit tricky and it was a little overwhelming when I walked in. Um, I had, there's a couple students that were working there. And, um, I, you know, I, I want to credit everybody who was there prior to me that was trying to get that up th- off the ground and keep it running. And, they, you know, they were doing what they could with what they had. Um, when I got there, it was a little bit different. There was a little bit more um, space available within the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so and there was a little bit more push to be like, OK, we're going to we're going to invest in this. Right. So if we need to if we need to put a little bit of money in, we'll do that. I don't know that that was always a situation. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is. It was a, uh, it was a, it, it had a lot of potential. It had a lot of potential. Okay. And you know, I, a lot of old hookies come walking through there and they go, eh, it looks exactly the same since I was here, you know? And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, there's not been a lot of changes and, and that's awesome. And also a little bit tricky too. And so mm-hmm. meat processing has changed a lot and that place was never built to do what we're asking it to do now. Mm-hmm. So food safety, we understand so much more about that right now than we did back in 1955 when it was built. And mm-hmm. so the rooms may not flow the way you want them to. So there's a lot of like thinking and planning just to keep everything, um, to keep everything like safe. Right. Yeah. So you're like, Oh, well, we can't do this if we're doing that. Cause that, that could be some cross contamination. You know, we're not going to be harvesting animals and, and, you know, making a ready to eat product, um, you know, all at the same time. So there's some of that. Um, but let me tell you about when I first got there, I showed up and I had, I um, I would say like three, maybe four students there. And one of them was like gung ho. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that young man, um, Richard Pricer, he now works for Smithfield Foods, and he, he, he's got meat in his blood, man. Like, yeah. there was no stopping him. He was going to do something there, and he helped me out a lot. He helped me get that place cleaned up. He helped me train students. That that young man, he um, he gets, should have a lot of credit for getting that place to where it is today. Um, so when I got there, I hired, I just started hiring kids because mm-hmm. I got challenged. They go, here's what we want to do with this meat lab. We want to operate it like all the other meat labs in the country, meaning we need it. We need to have students working in there. We need to have students learning in there. We need to have research being conducted in there. And we need to have a storefront to move all this product so we can keep funding this this unique facility, but mm-hmm. also to um, you know let people know that we're here and we're doing things. And so here's the trick about a meat lab. You go, I work at a meat lab. And they go, oh, cool, what do you do there? And you go, oh, we do meat science research. And they go, oh, well, you don't eat that stuff, do you? 
No, we do. <laughs> we do. Because the thing about meat science, which is great, is that we aren't doing anything weird. We're taking meat that's already out there and we're trying to improve it. So everything mm-hmm. that we harvest and process at the meat center is inspected um, by a meat inspector. So we're under audit every day that we're open. Um, so there's that. So we have to meet all the same compliances of, of the large packers, right? We have mm-hmm. to have a HACCP plan. We have to have records. We have to go through audits. Um, and so we do all of that. So everything we harvest there is a hundred percent safe to eat. Um, and so we do sell that. Right. And mm-hmm. that's part of the learning experience for our students. Yeah. Um, so th- that's kind of that. So the idea of the meat lab is that we f- facilitate the needs of the university, which is teaching research and outreach or extension, right? Mm-hmm. And so we do that every single day. And it looks different every day, but we do it. So I employ, I started hiring students and I really started being like, okay guys, we're all gonna learn this together. <laughs> and and Madison was one of the, my first students I hired. She was probably within the first year mm-hmm. that I got there. And let's let, Madison gave me some credit on something. So let's go ahead and do the same for her. Madison is a huge part of why we have a retail store. Um, I have a lot of students that really poured into that because we go, how do we, how do we make a retail store? I've, I've never worked retail. I don't know how to do this. I get online. I go, well, you gotta, when you go to Kroger, they like scan stuff that seems to work. <laughs> um, how do we do that? Oh, you buy a very, very expensive uh, system, you know? And like, we made our own, like we made our own counter out of like some junk lumber we had laying <laughs> around. And, you know, we, we bought these cases, um, that had like ice cream, like labels on them and stuff. And I had a student and, you know, Alex Weller, he's like, you can't sell meat with ice cream cones on the, on the display cases. And I go, what do you want to do? And he goes, I don't know, but I'm going to go talk to the sign shop down the street and I'm going to, I'm going to see if they can help us. And so he like helped brand it, you know, Mm -hmm. and made it look nice. And then, you know, Madison came in and she goes, okay, well, how are we going to bring these people up? I'm like, that's a great question. You want to figure that out? She's like, yeah. So she and one of our faculty members, Dr. White, they sat down and they made an Excel system that we use to this day mm-hmm. to ring up every single transaction. And they, those those kids there, they put that together. We started an online store, um, and especially that came through really well during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. and I had a student then, Madison uh, Garman. She she took that over and she she's the reason why the meat lab is still there is because she took that and, and made it work during that time. And, you know, I can think about so many students that have come through there and, and some of them went on to work in the meat industry and some of them didn't, but the, the amount of hard work they put in, the amount of dedication they put in that skill set will, will take them forever, no matter where they go. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of my favorite things about that meat lab is that I have students from all different backgrounds with all different skill sets and they just plug in and they feel like they're a part of something and mm-hmm. and it's bigger than them, you know, because the way that the meat lab is set up is that we are educating students every day. And sometimes it's, it's four agers that come in there and we're giving them a tour. Sometimes it's, you know, a junior level class and they're coming in and, and they see kids learning about meat processing. Um, sometimes it's an outreach event where, where, you know, adults from the community come in. Um, but every Friday we're there and they get to see the community come in and buy meat. And it's not just like, it's not just like they come in and buy meat. They come into these, into our store and they go to our, to our sales associates, you know, and they change every year depending on graduation dates. And they come in and they go, Hey, I see you have this cut here. Can you tell me about it? Mm-hmm. How would I cook this? Is this something I could make really fast for dinner tonight? Or do you got a, you got a seasoning I would, that would be good on this? I mean, they ask all kinds of questions. How are the animals raised? Mm-hmm. Do you guys do that here? They ask all kinds of questions. And these students, they're, oh, they're so great. They all, cause they, they, I always have like a senior student in there. Right. And so they listen they listen to an answer from that student because they know. And then they'll be like, hey, 
you're gonna get asked that question someday. Yeah. And so they like they literally memorize the answers, and then they just like go and and they, and they tell them. So they're learning that, and it, and they help. They know that because they're accountable to have that case set every week mm-hmm. with high quality, safe, wholesome um, proteins. They do it. Yeah. And they're happy to do it. And they're learning a skill set, you know, and they're learning to work as a team and they're learning to take leadership roles and they're learning to talk and communicate. You know, they, they do everything from, you know, talk to our researchers and be like, okay, we can get you these samples. We partner across campus um, with a lot of biomedical research. So if we're harvesting pigs, Uh um, pigs that have a very, you know, similar anatomy. And so they're like, oh, we need, we're doing some stuff, you know, we need kidneys. So, okay, well, we're harvesting pigs. We're going to have some kidneys. Yeah. And so they'll work with them on that. You know, we'll, we'll collect a lot of blood um, when we, mm-hmm. when we exterminate the animal. Um, we do all kinds of stuff like that. Right. So we're, yeah. we're not wasting these animals in any sense of the matter. We, we use them um, either through retail sales or through, um, you know, experimental research. And, and the biggest thing I can say is that it's all safe, right? It's yeah. all inspected. And so the kids have a really great opportunity to learn not just about the trade of, of meat processing, they mm-hmm. do, but they also are learning about food safety, right? Yeah. They're learning about, Madison talked about, like, I learned a lot about record keeping and, mm-hmm. and that goes, that goes into all types of fields and that you yeah. can kind of take some of those skills and, and carry them on. They're also learning, uh, they learn to teach their and train their, their peers. So they get a lot of that kind of leadership and, and, and kind of, uh, verbal verbal communication, explaining how things work and all that. I mm-hmm. let a lot of the students do some teaching and help me teach so they can kind of practice some of that public speaking. I mean, we're doing all kinds of really cool stuff there. Um, and, you know, people leave there. I've had some students call me, you know, and they go, you know, I, I was probably never going to go work in the meat industry, but I'm a better cattleman today because I did. I get yeah. it. I see it. And um, and so I get a lot of that for the, for, the, for the folks that go on that way. But we've also placed a lot of students in industry, large industry. You know, we have some at, at Smithfield, at Tyson, at Cargill. Um, we have them, you know, going to um, smaller facilities too. I've got a couple students here in the state of Virginia working in sm- some small meat processors. Um, we have some working in inspection. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are creating opportunity. We are trying to, to start slowly um, mm-hmm. building this next generation of, of, of meat processors here in the state of Virginia. And I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we've done there. You know, the department, um, you, you know, obviously I, I think what I'm doing is great, but I also <laughs> think, I think the support I get and the help I get from, from my department is, is, mm-hmm. is really important too. And, and helping educate these students and, and helping them to realize, you know, if, especially if you're somebody like me, mm-hmm. you, you, you go, oh, I mean, I want to be around beef cattle. Well, Jordan, you didn't grow up around beef cattle. You don't have that network. You know, you don't mm-hmm. have that buy-in already. But this is a really unique way for me to still stay very close to it. Yeah. In a way that, you know, nobody's really, you can't cut meat legally for a wage until you're 18 years old. So I'm coming in at a level playing field. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this guy's been working on the family farm since he was three. Well, how am I going to compete with that? Yeah. Well, meat science is a great way to do that. Yeah. Because everyone's pretty much at the same level of experience when you come in. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of wraps up a little bit about the, the last nine, 10 years of what we've been doing, which is just trying to put out students, um, mm-hmm. trying to educate them, trying to, to help them, you know, find, find kind of their passion and what they're good at. And sometimes it's record keeping and sometimes it's cutting and sometimes it's, you know, um, further processing or even sales, mm-hmm. balancing our books for us, you know, all of it is all important. So yeah. we kind of run it like a small business. And I think that really is what helps those students get a really great foundation to go out in the future and work at whether meat processing or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing that I think, another thing that I have observed from the sidelines, not just with, um, it's funny that this, that the meat lab has been this kind of 
if you're looking at a Venn diagram, that center part of the Venn diagram for a lot of random people that I know in the ag industry. And some of them work in the meat industry. Some of them don't, like you were just saying, but they all have this kind of um, very fraternity type of feel with the meat lab. And I think putting aside the practical industry skills that they're getting. I think one of the other things that I have observed specifically from you is your ability to mentor folks. Like just random question, but like you were talking about the level playing field, but how many of your students that are coming into work in the meat lab actually have meat cutting experience day one? Yeah, I would say uh, one. Yeah. (laughs) And I've had over 70 students work there. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that idea of mentorship and cultivating a sense of confidence um, in an area that is brand spanking new. Can you speak a little bit, your perspective of mentorship and the importance of that in, in a leadership role and a management role and a boss role? Yeah. So mentoring, mentoring students is, um, you sign up to work at Virginia tech and you know, you're going to be working with students and you have no idea the capacity and and what that means. Um, and you're not prepared for it. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's some there's some teachers out here. There's probably some 4-H volunteers out here. And you think, or, you know, maybe you volunteer with some youth, other other youth programs, and you think to yourself, oh, yeah, like, I'll go and I'll help and it'll be fine. And then you don't even know what you're about to get into. Yeah. Um, so I'm working with, with young uh, young adults, right? They're coming into college. Sometimes sometimes I'm, like, the first person they meet, right? Like, I got to get a job. And I don't, I'm scared to be away from home. And, you know, I, I'm not sure of myself or what I'm doing. I don't. I don't even know how I ended up here. My parents just made me sign a piece of paper and now I'm at Virginia Tech. And so, you know, we go through some of that and we, we work with these students to really start building some confidence. And, you know, I can only be me, right? That's, that's all I can do. And so when I, when I, you, you kind of said like, well, there's a little bit of like this fraternity there and there is, um, and we're proud of that. We're proud that we're still close to this day a lot. And, and there's this generation of, you know, like Madison, you know, she's been removed for four or five years now, but she still knows some of the names of these young, these young folks working for me. And, you know, they, they know who she is because of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, that builds that network. But you know, when I I was saying earlier is, you know, I really looked up to my sister and my cousins and, and you know, all those people out. And so I kind of have that going on at the meat lab Mm -hmm. and it's, I definitely mentor these young kids in the best way that I can, in any way that I can. I, you know, I sit them down, I talk to them, I go, what are your goals? What do you want to do? How are you doing? And, you know, they start to open up and they start to, they start to see things. And then, you know, you go, then you kind of look around the room and you go, all right, I'm going to go make those two work together. Cause this one's older and they, they might have a similar thing and that helps them. It builds Mm -hmm. that confidence. It builds that trust. It builds that, that brotherhood, that sisterhood. And, um, you know, yeah, the, the overall, that's why I always tell the, these kids that work for me, I go, guys, if you learn how to cut meat, that's a bonus. Mm-hmm. If you feel confident in, in yourself and your future when you leave here, that's what this is all about. Mm-hmm. That's what all of this is about, mm-hmm. right? You know, you, you can always go read a textbook and, and watch a YouTube video to, to remember how to, to do something. That's fine. But if you walk out of here going, you know what, I really built some some leadership skills. Like, Jordan really leaned on me to, to do that. And I stepped up and I did it. So now I know I can. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was really shy when I first started there, but now I have no problem giving a tour and talking to 20, 30 complete strangers, adults, mm-hmm. kids, whatever. You know, I, you know, I, I couldn't really write a, a cohesive email when I first started and it was all rambly and just went on and on. And now I can do that. And my favorite thing to do is the phone rings and you go answer that. And they go, I'm not answering it. Yeah. And you go, answer the phone. What am I going to say? I don't know. Say your name in the meat lab. Hey, it's Jordan. You know, yeah. and like, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll talk to you. They called yeah. you. <laughs> and so, 
you know, you, you man, Tony, you will not. It's that's the funniest thing is watch these kids be like, oh, I'm gonna answer the phone. Yeah. And then by the time they graduate, they're like, get out of the way, give me the thing. Yeah. And, then, you know, and it's like that's the confidence that we're looking for. And and you know, some of that ends up going into to to meet and and all of that. But a lot of it's just you know watching them go through that that four years of just hardship and challenges and finding yourself and all that and giving them a place where they can come and feel safe and can be themselves and they can grow and they can safely make mistakes. Um, that's what I try to create there so that we can build this next generation and go, listen, this is what agriculture is about. It's about being there for each other. It's about helping each other out. It's about stepping up. It's about doing all these things. And so, you know, that's kind of how mentoring these kids has gone. And it's, you know, some of them come in and it's like, wow, that's really heavy, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I'm going to try to help you. I'm going to try to make this place a place that can help you rebound from that. Or sometimes you go, yeah, I know you think that's a big problem today. It's, it's, I'm <laughs> sure you, it is not. Um, but it, I know, I know it feels that way to you. So, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, but as far as, you know, especially, you know, we're in this, we're in our spring semester, we got a lot of seniors and, you know, I'm writing letters of recommendation. I'm trying to help these people practice interview skills. And so, um, you know, that, that all comes together too. And, um, so that's part of that job as well. Things that you don't, you don't sign up, you, do, you don't know you're signing up for when mm-hmm. you take that job. Um, but it's obviously one of my favorite things about my position is being able to mentor these young people. And then the best part is when they go out and then you look at them in three, four or five years and you go, whoa, y'all are out there. You're killing it. This yeah. is awesome. And, and when they come back and they go, eh, I credit a lot of that to the meat lab and you and all that. And I'm like, oh, well, that's awesome because mm-hmm. I didn't even know I was doing that at the time. Yeah. You know, so, so cool. That's, that's a big part of why I love what I do. Mm-hmm. And then, the, yeah, the cutting the meat, getting to eat meat, that's just the bonus. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you kind of, when we step out and step back a little bit from um, the overview of the meat lab in general, if you start thinking about Virginia Tech is a land-grant university. Um, of course, those were formed with the, the idea of um, some vocational purposes coming out sure. of that. So when we're looking at the meat lab from a functional resource for producers out there. Um, you mentioned extension earlier and kind of like the ties mm-hmm. to that. I start in my mind imagining two different routes you can go um, with what you're doing in the meat lab. First, the the idea of um, kind of like a direct sales component because the animals that y'all are harvesting there by and large, are coming from Virginia Tech, yeah, right? Yeah, coming from so, the farm systems out on Plantation Road and Kentland Farm, yeah. Yeah, so that idea, I think a lot of our listeners can relate to the idea, or at least it seems like there's a lot of folks out there, especially coming on the heels of COVID, trying to get into direct sales. So the idea that it's raised on, the, even though it's a campus setting, it's raised on the quote-unquote farm, um, and then you know, sold direct to consumers through the storefront there. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of like that nugget or that bucket. And then you look over here, but because you are on a university campus, you've got the research and a lot of the um, kind of machine that goes behind doing um, commercial, large scale industry type of um, kind of like information finding and trying to solve problems on a large scale that impact not just Virginia, but across the country. So, um, and sometimes those things are a little bit more relatable for your commercial producers who are just, you know, whether you're a cow-calf operation, you're backgrounding or feeding cattle, some of the research that comes out of a place like this Virginia Tech Meat Lab um, can go into making you a better producer because of the research that you're finding. So maybe we can break that down a little bit. Let's start on the research side and um, because you're going to graduate this spring, getting your PhD. (laughs) Yep. I'm working on finishing up my uh, PhD. It it might be the record for the longest PhD ever, but but 
there's a caveat to that, folks. I also work full time. Okay. <laughs> there we go. That's what I keep telling myself anyway. Well, that's the thing. I think um, so. We're recording this podcast right now. Um, it's the end of April. We were trying to catch Jordan before uh, she just took a job out west. I don't know if she can even. I don't know if you. It's common knowledge. Is paperwork signed? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people in the state, people that I don't even know, know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm working on finishing up my PhD, obviously in meat science, and I'm studying under Dr. Gerard. Um, and we're working to be done, um, this, this spring, summer, and I will head to the university of Nebraska, uh, in August. And I will be a meat uh, extension specialist out there and doing a little bit of extension outreach, a little bit of research. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be so good. So as you're looking back on your time, um, as being both an educator and a student, um, and the research that you've conducted, uh, tell us a little bit about maybe some of the research that you've done that is applicable to producers here in Virginia. Yeah, so um, I've been in Dr. Gerard's research lab for about eight years now, and um, we've worked on all types of things. He's a muscle biologist, growth biologist. He's also a meat scientist. So that actually comes together really, really well when we think about producing protein, right? And so um, we've worked with some large industry partners, and we've done some applied research um, looking at, at uh, harvesting practices to improve meat quality. Dr. Gerard has a rich history in, in studying the conversion of muscle to meat, right? So uh, when that animal's out walking around, that is muscle. Uh, but, you know, one, post rigor mortis, you know, 12, 24 hours later, it converts and you, you know that that's, that, that meat has a different texture, a different color, different everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of what we call it, the conversion of muscle to meat. And so he's, like I said, he's got a rich history in studying that and understanding that. And so that's really what we've been looking at for a really long time um, is better understanding that. And now that we've got the kind of the, the biochemistry of that really pretty well understood. Um, there's probably still a few questions we could answer, but for the most part, we have that pretty well understood. Um, we're starting to look at how can we take that information from the cellular level and, and look at that when we look at meat processing, how Mm -hmm. can we improve color? How can we improve tenderness or, or texture? How can we improve the water holding capacity? So it's not, um, you know, watery in the package and things of that nature. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we've been focusing. And so we partnered with some industry partners for the last several years, looking at a phenomenon called two-toning and two-toning is something we looked at in the ham muscle. Um, and, and I think what we found is it's a little bit inherent in the muscle, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit, um, more obvious in, 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 in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and color is really important to a consumer, right? We can't yeah. smell meat when we buy it. We can't touch it. We can't, it's in a, it's in a nice little tray with a film over it. And so when we look at purchasing meat as consumers, we are using a, a couple a couple of visual indicators, right? Mm-hmm. Or cues to be like, that's what I want to buy. So a lot of research out there will, will tell us that um, consumers use color, mm-hmm. right? They go, this tells me it's fresh. This tells me it's wholesome. Um, and and that's that's what they use in, in part in, in making that, especially when it comes to pork, right? Marbling is mm-hmm. really important in beef. Not that marbling is not important in pork, but it's not as important. Mm-hmm. So color is really important. So if you get a if you get a ham and it's a little bit off color, like it's dark here, light there, like what's going on there? How can we fix that? So we spend a lot of time titrating <laughs> out harvesting practices because we go, well, we're seeing it before it gets to the blast cooler. So it's got to be in the harvesting process. Mm-hmm. And so we titrated all kinds of things. And and what we found was... What does titrate mean? Titrate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Remember remember when you're in a chemistry class and they make you take and you got to keep dropping those those little uh, things and all of a sudden the, the, the water or whatever the solution is turns pink? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Titrating. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so good. we're trying to narrow down and, and isolate what is this? Is there a certain time? Is there a certain temperature? Is there a certain who knows what? So we're trying mm. to 
knocks it down. So what we what we kind of came up to is it's probably the dehairing process. The muscle itself is still very much alive and still um, trying to maintain homeostasis immediately. Um, you know. Uh, following the estimulation or the bleeding out of the carcass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, what we found is that I think there's a sensitive window mm-hmm. of, of that muscle trying to kind of keep up and maintain homeostasis at that point. So when we, when we subject it to um, de-herring, which is like a, I mean, most people probably haven't seen this process, but it's, you, you put this carcass in, in through these paddles and it removes about 98% of the hair, right. Mm-hmm. Um, off the carcass. And so it's a pretty vigorous process and it, it will force, um, um, artificial contraction, uh, meaning that it pushes on the muscle, right, from mm-hmm. the tumbling of this carcass to remove the hair. Um, and so it's forcing the contraction, which speeds up all these little chemicals inside the inside the tissue, and it can really alter our meat quality, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we are, we are finally, I think, after years and years of doing some work on this and a couple of publications later, I think we're about to kind of hone in on, on the, what we know what it is. We know how we can improve it or or, or mitigate it, some of it anyway, um, lessen it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the extent of, of two-toning. Um, the problem is, is that the ham and the loin are very different muscles. And mm-hmm. so right now we're trying to figure out, well, if this works in the ham, it doesn't necessarily work in the loin and mm-hmm. the carcass is compiled of both. So <laughs> right now we're trying to narrow down a, a, a time frame, a window of opportunity to kind of, to, to process them at the same rate so that, the the quality the color the texture all that mm-hmm. is is optimal um, for both the ham and the loin because you're not just buying one right yeah um, when you're buying the carcass anyway right yep so that was one big project I spent a lot of time on um, but my PhD work um, result revolves mostly around beef cattle mm-hmm. or I just around beef cattle um, <laughs> which just is beef cattle just beef cattle <laughs> which is awesome because that's what I'm really excited and passionate about is beef cattle so and 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 beef production so you know, we talked a little bit, you said you brought up some COVID things. And so, um, that, that kind of fits into some of my research. So my research is looking at beef in those quality attributes we just talked about, right? Color, mm-hmm. texture, tenderness, um, all that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a big thing that's gaining a lot of popularity is, is grass fed beef. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's gaining popularity here in Virginia and all across the country. It's mm-hmm. like a four billion dollar entity, right? Um, and it's it's expected to continue to only get bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a that's awesome for Virginia producers because we have a lot of grass here, a lot of really great forages, right? So cool. The problem with grass fed beef, not always, but at times, um, there's a decent amount of research that would support that it's usually a little bit darker in color mm-hmm. and it's a little bit tougher in in texture or less tender. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we think about, um, beef, we think about, well, color we know is really important to a consumer. Yep. And, uh, that's what makes you buy the product Mm -hmm. color and marbling and beef is what makes you buy the product. Um, what makes you go back and buy a product? There's a lot of data, um, is tenderness. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people love to eat filet mignon, right? Mm -hmm. And filets don't usually have a lot of flavor Mm -hmm. because there's not a lot of fat in them. Right. But they go, Oh, filets are my favorite. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because it's tender. It was easy to eat. Yep. Right? Um, and that's why you like it. Um, so what we're, what we're trying to figure out is, you know, with this research is why is grass fed a little bit darker, a little bit tougher? Mm-hmm. Because if, if you, if you go out in the lot and you get two similar genetics, one will be one and one will be the other, right? So mm-hmm. the grain fed will be a brighter cherry red and a dark, or, or excuse me, will be a brighter cherry red and more tender mm-hmm. typically than this grass fed. Okay. So that's kind of what the question started as like, well, why are they different? Well, the mm-hmm. only thing that's different is what they're eating. Yeah. 
Okay. So we understand enough about muscle to understand that, you know, that old saying like you are what you eat. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like, so mm-hmm. we're like, okay, well this obviously has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that muscle can shift. Right. So you think about a human, you know, you, you start working out, your muscles look different. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you eat different, your, your body looks different. Mm-hmm. And that's the same, that's the same for livestock. And so we started to think about it. Well, we know we can shift muscle from this dark to this light because we, we background them on forages and those would be darker grass fed, maybe not quite the same finishing weight, but, but we know that if we put grain on them, they're going to get brighter cherry red, they're mm-hmm. going to get more tender, blah, 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 right? Great. So we thought, well, we know that's probably what's happening there. What if we took them up to a finishing weight? Could we pull them back? Does muscle have the plasticity to go back? So what we did is we took them up to 1,300 pounds and, we, and then we pulled them off and we put them on a maintenance diet for 60 days. And we didn't know this at the time because this was 2019 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but now this seems to be a pretty valuable piece of information <laughs> of what we found. Mm-hmm. Um, because remember in 2020 when we were harvesting cattle, we were harvesting cattle, we were harvesting cattle, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden we stopped. Yep. And people are going, ooh, now what am I going to do? Because for the guys out there feeding uh, cattle, they know that that's going to be more input. If I got to keep them on feed, this is increasing my inputs. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at inputs, yep, yeah, that's that hits right. your bottom dollar. Yeah, that hits your bottom dollar. So, so that's what we were, we kind of look at this and we go, well, we took them off. So we put them on this maintenance diet. One went to, to forages. One stayed on this maintenance diet of grain, and um, we harvested those animals, and there was no difference in the carcass, mm. right? So we knew that they were all going to hit choice. So that's a really great thing that we can go back and, and work with producers and go, Hey guys, if this, the chances that we live through another pandemic are going to be slim, right? That's yeah. one in every hundred years. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. One was enough for this one lifetime. Was, yeah, that was enough. <laughs> right. But the markets fluctuate and they change, mm-hmm. right? And natural disasters occur and you may need to hold cattle a little bit longer, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. you're looking at the grid and you're going, well, you know, the, the, the price isn't right right now for the inputs I have. Can I hold them a little bit longer? Is, yeah. it, is it the time to sell? And so this is this is valuable information for cons, for producers to go, okay, I can still go and get a choice quality, even if I have to pull them off feed and wait just a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I can still get that premium for producing a choice uh, mm-hmm. carcass, right? And, and, and I can still have that color because if you look at the grid, right? Color is really important. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest discounts that a, that a producer will get selling off the grid is that um is dark cutters and i'm not here to say that that grass-fed beef are dark cutters that's not what i'm saying but i am saying that it conveys the importance of meat color yeah there's a reason that the markets go hey they've got to be bright cherry red or you're you're gonna get dinged on because it's hard to sell it Mm -hmm. and so i think that that's the kind of information that you know that i'm the the Girard lab is trying to work towards that. I'm trying to get out there um, and help producers. And, 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 you know, you see me in the lab, you know, pipetting things and looking like a mad scientist. It's like, (laughs) I don't know how this is ever going to help me. Yeah. Give it time. It will help you. We just got to figure out a few things first. So that's, that's one of them. Um, And then we're also looking at feeding strategies again, trying to better understand how feeding can, you know, what's the difference between feeding for 90 days and the difference for feeding 120 days. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference? Maybe. Right. And so does that change the color? Does that change the quality grade? You know, or am I just putting fat on and, and, and going to get dinged on a yield grade four now? Yeah. Or do I need 250 days? You know, so we're, we're kind of trying to hone that in a little bit here and, and get that information to the, the, um, the producers, um, when we, when we kind of conclude these studies and go, Hey, this is this, this strategy here in Virginia, you know, we, we fed them down at, at the, the Virginia type farms, you know, this could work here. 
Um, mm-hmm. Here's what you should know. And so that is, I think, the ultimate goal for what we're trying to do. It, it's been a long, drawn-out process. I mean, feeding cattle isn't an overnight thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's in part. Also, I... Um, I'm not the best student. I don't, I don't go to the lab every day. I probably should. Right. We would have had this information three years ago. Um, but yeah, that is kind of what we're working on. Um, Mm -hmm. getting some of that information out there to them. And then, um, so that's kind of the research side. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and that's specific to the stuff I'm doing. There's some other really great stuff going on in our lab. Um, I got a colleague, um, she's working on understanding, uh, the mechanisms that are controlling tenderness and and based on some feeding strategies as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember, we want bright cherry red, tender beef. That's what we're going for. Without, <laughs> that's what we're shooting for. Yeah, that's what we're shooting for. Um, so we've been working on, on quality attributes uh, kind of through growth mechanisms. Um, and so that's what we've been working on there. I have a random question. I got um, a random answer. <laughs> it's funny because even though I was an ag student and mm-hmm. uh, like spent all my time at Linton Reeves, not in the meat lab, but just right across the road there. So this research, all this research that is conducted, a producer is listening to this today and is like, ooh, I want to know what the final turnout of that is where can producers go to find that information or is it does it come down through extension or where should they be looking for that information yeah so some of that information is um unfortunately some of it is housed in like these you know you gotta have a uh, prescription you gotta have a subscription (laughs) you'd have a subscription to some of these journals um but yes a lot of that can be found in um our our um our extension websites and things of that nature we do put out some publications um and hopefully you know some of that will get to them, but there's a lot of really helpful resources, um, through the extension websites with articles and other universities have some really helpful articles too. That would be, you know, a quick Google search, $0 to you, no, Mm -hmm. no, you know, firewalls you got to get around or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are great places to start finding information. And then also if there's programs that are going on in the state, um, taking part in those, um, and, and going to listen to those talks or, or participating in some sort of program. Um, those are also where we, we get some of that information out as well. Cool. Okay. All right. Now switching gears. Yep. So we talked about our research bucket. Now we're swatch, sw- swatching, swapping over mm-hmm. to our, uh, that direct, um, retail, direct to consumer type of mindset. So that's what you've been doing essentially as far as like the, the what you do on a day-to-day basis in the meat lab is direct sales to consumers. Yep. So talk to us a little bit about the advice or, um, resources that producers could go and find on that or just just give us some advice in general yeah so I don't know where you'd go find these resources but I'm going to give you like I don't know a handful of tips um okay so the thing to understand is that the meat lab um it's 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 a pretty anything that's going on at the the at the university level is expensive right so and I think everybody thinks like oh well Virginia Tech just pays for these things no the beef barn pays for the beef barn. The meat lab pays for the meat lab. The swine Mm. unit pays for the swine unit, right? And so we kind of have to operate like a small business, which is why we have the store in part of the education process. Okay, so when this all started, I had somebody come up to me once and go, really, this is what you're gonna do? You're gonna sell meat here. Why would someone come buy meat in the middle? They have to get to the middle of campus to buy this meat Mm -hmm. when they could go to Kroger which was on their way home mm-hmm. and they could pick up laundry detergent and some meat and some eggs and some milk. And you're expecting someone to drive, find a parking spot and come in here and buy meat from you. And I said, yeah, <laughs> yep. That's, that's what that's I'm asking. That's what I'm going to do. That's and, and that's exactly what small producers are asking people to do. They go, how am I going to get someone to go to my website and buy meat for me? How am I going to get someone to go to the farmer's market and come to my stand? How am I going to, all X, Y, and Z, right? Mm-hmm. When they could just go to the grocery store and buy it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that was a challenge that I was, that I was facing was like, how do I do this? And here is what I found out. Mm-hmm. 
um, social media is a game changer. Mm -hmm. Before social media, if people were doing it, I don't know how they did. I don't have an idea. Um, But if you are processing meat and you look through like food magazines, food websites, TV ads, you need to be on that level. Mm -hmm. You can't just take your package of meat in a vacuum bag and take a picture of it and hope someone's going to come buy that. Yeah. Somebody will. Somebody will. Um, But not everybody will. They're going to go, um, I can go buy that same thing at the store. Um, but if you can, even if you're not processing that, if you could even just take a pack or two of that item, take it to your house, put it on a cutting board, make it look nice. That helps because that actually shows the quality of it, mm-hmm. right? They can actually see the color. They can actually see the the marbling, the texture, all of those things, you know? And then it, that helps. When sometimes, so having actual images of the product, because, you know, a lot of us are selling it, and, and the Meat Lab included, we sell a lot of our product frozen in a vacuum bag. It's not the most appealing thing, but it works really well for storage. Yeah. Um, so that is the best way, right? Like, because mm-hmm. people come in, they buy it, they throw it in the freezer. It's not going to get freezer burned. You know, it's got a long shelf life in the fridge as a vacuum package. So it works that way. It doesn't work as far as marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have, so you can have the best meat in the world, but if you can't market it, it's not going to move. Mm-hmm. Here's how you market it. Market it by one has to be safe. Mm-hmm. If it's not safe, somebody gets sick, they're never going to buy it again. Mm-hmm. Right? They have to buy it with their eyes. If they don't buy it with their eyes, they're not buying it. Mm-hmm. So it has to meet that bright cherry color red or the grayish pink for pork. It needs to hit a certain level of marbling or, believe it or not, there's some people out there that like their stuff leaner. Mm-hmm. So you got to find out who your niche market is. Mm-hmm. You have to understand and you got to talk to your consumers. Mm-hmm. You go, what did you like about that? What did you not like about that? Oh, I think it should be cut thicker. I think it should be cut thinner. I think it should be trimmed tighter. I think it needs more fat on it. Listen to them. Mm-hmm. The, the meat industry is a consumer-driven market. If they want bubblegum flavored beef, by God, we'll figure out a way to do it. Okay? <laughs> because that at the end of the day, that's who we're trying. That's our customer. That's yep. who we have to, to satisfy. If they're not willing to buy it from us, then what are we doing? Mm-hmm. So we've, we've got to meet the consumer where they're at. The consumer is very different now. Mm-hmm. Right when I was when I was little, I remember my grandfather used to take me. He used to babysit me because he was retired and everybody else was still working. And he would take me to the corner grocery store and he would go talk to the butcher. And he go, "I need this and I need that." He'd get it, and I don't know that we cared then. We were just happy we had enough money to buy meat. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the eighties were just yeah. happy to have enough money to yep. buy meat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was that. Now we have a little bit more disposable income. People are really conscious about how they spend their money. Yep. Right, they're not afraid to spend money. Mm-hmm. but they want to get what they're paying for. Yep. And they, and, and they also are a little bit more conscious about how is it, you know, they, they call them like credence cues, like what they believe in. So they want them to be raised a certain way. They want them to, you know, so if you, if you're raising things, be proud of what you're doing, be very transparent, you know? Yeah. I feed them grain. Yeah. I feed them grass. Yep. Don't, don't try to make it into something. It's not mm-hmm. because once they feel like you're lying to them, they're not going to like that. Mm-hmm. Be proud of what you're doing. If you, if you cut a, if you have a piece of meat, if you're cutting it yourself, or if you have a butcher cutting it for you, and you go, that doesn't look right. I wouldn't buy that. Don't, don't yeah. put it in the case. Don't try to market it to somebody. Don't. Yeah. Because that's that's gonna be that's gonna reflect you and your 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 brand. Um. So you know you go well. Let's try a new product. We want to try to make a, a different type of sausage. And you go, this is not good. But we just made a hundred pounds of it. Your first loss is your best loss. If it's not good, it's not good. Yeah. Throw it away. It's a hundred pounds. You'll you'll have another hundred pounds next week of something better, mm-hmm. right? So you really got to play to your audience. You really got to start following the food trends. And as I know, all these agricultures are going ah, just eat a steak and salt and pepper. That's it. That's fine. 
That's fine. There's a lot of people out there that believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of people out there that really want, you know, Chipotle flavored something, you know, yeah. or this or that, you know, um, consumers, you know, they, they say that consumers, the, the plant-based stuff or what it doesn't really take off the way that it, it's definitely a market. Don't get me wrong. It's definitely a market, but they go everything. If you think about plant-based meats, most of them are ground texture, right? Mm-hmm. You can buy a ground beef, you can buy a hamburger patty, you can buy sausage links, you know that consumers get <clears throat> tired of the same product, mm-hmm. right? So you need to have variety. You need to have a variety of cuts, and mm-hmm. then you're going to have to eventually lean into that that value added and find some flavors, but then stick to what you're good at. Mm-hmm. You, know, so, you know, I got students that go, what if we did this? What if we did that? I said, guys, we could do that. Yeah. We okay. could do it this week. I don't know when we'd have time to do it again. So we have a, we have a couple of sausages. We probably stick to about eight or 10 different pork sausages. We stick to, I mean, seasonal things we do, you know, Christmas and Thanksgiving, we might do something different, but for the most part, we stick to one type of bacon, mm-hmm. hickory smoke. That's our number one seller. You know, you could put in a hundred different flavors of bacon. Hickory smoke is still going to be your number one seller. Yep. You know, we make two different types of summer sausage. I could make a million different types of summer sausage. I can make a million different types of snack sticks. But at the end of the day, I went and talked to a guy at a, at an industry and I said, I go, yeah. what's your number one ham? He goes, honey ham. It's number one seller. Always mm-hmm. has been for the last 800 years. <laughs> I don't know how many years he said, but it was, it was for a long time. He goes, and you know, these people are making hams that taste like all kinds of different stuff, you know? And yeah. he goes, yeah, we could make a, a jalapeno ham and it sells. But like when you go to the counter, are you going to go buy two pounds of jalapeno ham every time? Probably not. You're probably going to get some honey ham because, you know, the kids will eat it. You know, your spouse will eat it. Your, your you know, grandma will eat it. Everyone will eat it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you just got to stick to the basics and just do them really, really well. Yeah. Uh, and don't try to branch out too fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but social media is number one, making sure you have a, a, a processor that you trust that it's safe, meaning food safe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you can trust them in that way. Um, making sure you, you really use the social media, get the images right, making sure it's a product that you're proud of. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how you start to build that and talk to your consumers. Go, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? What would you like to buy more from or have more of, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that. a good way to get started. <laughs> I mean, that feels like really solid advice. Yeah, there. I mean, that's, yeah. That's I mean, I could, I'll write a book on it. Yeah, yeah. one of these days. Yeah, one of these after, days. After your dissertation. Yeah, I'm gonna write that one first. <laughs> get that one done all right Jordan well we are wrapping up our time together but um kind of a common theme on this show is give us the best piece of life advice you've ever gotten so um when when you think about life advice I think everyone in their mind goes what did what did my grandfather always say what did my dad always say what did my mom always say what did my grandmother say you know maybe I had a teacher or whatever and uh if anyone has ever met my father um you know he's always got a couple quick phrases and um, <clears throat> he used to come in the house and we'd be sitting around not doing anything. And, and we, we were, we were a big family and we, you know, we had a lot of work to do around that house, laundry needed done, dishes, you know, yard, whatever, garden. And he'd always walk in that house. We'd be sitting there doing nothing, being just little kids. And he'd be like, <laughs> not little kids, but like, you know, teenagers. And he'd be like, you can't work sitting on your ass. Get up. <laughs> and he's, he's a hundred percent right about that. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, that's something I take with me every day is that, yeah, you can't, you can't work sitting on your ass. You got to get up, you got to go, and you got to just push and drive. And I don't care if you have a desk job. Every once in a while, you still got to get up. You got to go talk to your customer. You got to go check with somebody down the hall. You got to, you know, you got to work together. And, and so that's something I've taken with me every day. And um, that's the best life advice I've ever gotten. You can't work sitting on your ass, so get up. <laughs> Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Young Farmers Podcast. 
You can keep the conversation going on social media at Virginia Young Farmers or send us an email at vayoungfarmerspodcast at gmail.com with ideas on future topics you'd want to hear to help navigate farming, life, or both. We can't wait to be with you again on Virginia's Young Farmer Podcast. Until then, happy farming. Happy farming.